Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. If you want to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. And I'll invite this morning's reader to come up and read a lengthy passage to you. So get ready. John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may, be, may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in a number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which, which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he, whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Thank you. I should have forewarned you that I was asking Olivia to jump down from what happens in the story to what Jesus teaches about what's happening. So forgive me for failing to have mentioned that, but that's why she did it. 
You know, in the 19th century, there developed a school of theology known as the Religious Historical School. And its thinking then crept into the 20th century in a form of theology that maybe you've heard of before called the Jesus Seminar. The movement was anti-supernatural, where they didn't believe that anything supernatural or miraculous could take place in our world. Therefore, they rewrote these gospel stories where miracles actually took place. This is one of those stories where they gave one of two options because clearly a miracle couldn't have happened. The first option was they say that Jesus set this whole thing up beforehand, going into this region beforehand, building out a stockpile of food in a cave that was behind him, and then wearing a loose-fitting jacket or cloak, and his disciples creating a bread line behind him, sneaking it into his sleeves as he continued to hand out and distribute bread for hours on end. The other option, they say, is that really there wasn't a miracle that happened here. It's really that there are many people who didn't have food, but many did still have food. And the miracle, quote unquote, that happened was hardly a miracle. It was just that Jesus' teaching spurred and sparked human generosity. And so people freely shared what they had with one another. So the miracle, well, hardly a miracle at all, they'd say. However, the real story that's recorded for us here, a real historical story, really does record a miracle, an incredible, wondrous work of Jesus. In fact, a work, a miracle that was foreshadowed centuries before. You even notice that in his teaching and dialogue with the people about this moment, Jesus would reference that ancient foreshadow of this moment where the children of Israel leave Egypt and find themselves in the middle of the wilderness with no food or resources available to them. And yet God would care for them. In Exodus 16, he would supernaturally provide bread from heaven. They would call it manna, which simply means what is it? It was a mystery what God provided, and yet it sustained them and gave them life where they otherwise would have perished. In Psalm 78, the psalmist is reflecting on God's care for his people as he delivers them and then provides for them. And he says this about the attitude of the children of Israel in Psalm 78, verse 19. Yes, he says, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Or in another translation, they even spoke complaining against God himself, saying, God can't give us food in the wilderness. The point, though, of that moment was to demonstrate that God alone could provide a meal where there was absolutely no way to otherwise provide one because they were in the wilderness. Now, this is exactly what you then see Jesus do with the feeding of the 5,000, even with other gospel writers specifically using that term, that he was going to a remote area on the coast of the Sea of Galilee where it was referred to as being like the wilderness. Even the gospel writers picked up on this is an echo of that, that long in our past moment where God provided in a way that no one else could. Jesus is here doing the same thing. There's another Old Testament miracle that, that might have come to mind for you that's a little less well known. And it's when Elisha, Elijah's young protege, Elisha would all of a sudden have this opportunity to feed a bunch of people who are desperate. He feeds 100 people with 20 small barley loaves, the same language that's used here for these little loaves of bread this boy brought. And then the statement is made in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 43, verse 43, that thus says the Lord, they shall eat and even have some left over. It's the very descriptors that all four gospels tell us about this moment, that they ate their, full, their fill and then found that there were leftovers for them. 
You see, the point of it is that just as Elijah would be greater than, or Elisha would be greater than Elijah, whom he had followed, his power and authority would supersede him. And in the same way, Jesus would have a greater power, a power that would supersede the one who went before him, John the Baptist, who came, the Bible says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's telling you that a greater one is here. It's making a point to you that's very simple and very clear, teaching you that Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than Moses because what Jesus provides here in this moment leaves people satisfied rather than disgruntled, which is what you find the people complaining about the manna in the Old Testament. And he leaves them with leftovers rather than spoilage rather than mold, because you remember they were unable to keep the manna, and yet Jesus wanted to make sure that they retain the leftover fragments here. The other thing this teaches us is that Jesus is greater than the prophets of old, surpassing even Elisha. He is categorically different than them all because he's God. That's the point of this. Only God could do this. But our question for the day is, but what's coming to mind for the disciples who were present there? What's the miracle and moment in time teach them who are present to actually experience it? What does the sign point us to? Because you remember that we're in a new series that we've entitled The Seven Signs Found in John, or that we're referring to as we look at the seven signs that are recorded for us in John. Remember, he records seven miraculous works that he refers to as signs because he's not just recording them because they're worth you being in awe and wonder about. No, he's recording them because they point to a greater reality outside of themselves. In fact, at the end of his gospel, you remember that he makes the comment that I've recorded these signs, even though he did many, many others, he says, I've recorded them that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you might have life was his comment. You see, this is why we're referring to our series through these seven signs by the title, That You May Believe. Because the signs are not merely recorded to impress you. They're recorded here to convince you that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, heaven's promised king and deliverer, and that he's worthy of your trust. So if a sign exists to point to something outside of and beyond itself, what does the sign here this miracle here, what does it point us to beyond just Jesus' true identity as being greater than the law and greater than the prophets? What's the other thing that we'll spend our time this morning talking about? You see, I think we begin to understand what the sign is pointing to when you look at what Jesus actually taught about this. Because right after this, there's another amazing thing that happens, and then John goes back to opening up and explaining what actually took place in that moment. You find that the miracle then says to us, when you look at the teaching of Jesus, that it's not just that Jesus can fill your stomach, but that Jesus gives us something that would satiate the hunger all of us feel that's much, much deeper than merely our stomachs. And most importantly, that he is the bread. He's the very thing. He doesn't just have something that can satisfy your deepest longings. It's that he himself is that thing. That the thing is a person and he's saying, it's me. That he is the bread of life that could satiate the deep hunger and desire that all of us feel. You see, this is why the sign points us from the miracle to the life that Jesus tells us is available in a relationship with him. So that's what we want to talk about is the kind of life that Jesus offers us. Because the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 points to the kind of life that Jesus offers. 
And there's three things I just want to highlight from this story about that life that Jesus offers. The first is that it is a life and experience that can include rest. A life and experience that can include rest, even in the midst of chaos. But a second thing, it's a life and an experience that has eternal purpose. It has eternal purpose as you serve Jesus by serving other people. And therefore it is an incredible, here's the third thing, an incredible quality and experience of life. That because we can experience rest even in the midst of the chaos and because we have eternal purpose now, because now we are partnering with Jesus by loving others, because of that, our life has a quality and an experience to it that we can find nowhere else. So think about this. The first thing, the kind of life that Jesus is offering us is a life and experience that can include rest even amidst the chaos that's involved in our daily lives or in our broken world. You see, what happened in our text today is so remarkable, so crazy. This miracle is like such a massive scale that it's the only one that's recorded in all four of the Gospels with the exception of Jesus' own resurrection. To feed 5,000 people with a boy's sack lunch of just small, five small loaves and two small sardine-type fish is indeed miraculous. But what John and the other gospel writers want you to know is that it was 5,000 men who were counted. Or in Matthew's gospel, the way that his pen records it is that it's 5,000 plus, he says, besides the women and children. So many Bible scholars would say that this number that you should be picturing or, or the way that we should talk about this is not just Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's Jesus feeding the many thousands who would have been there that day. And the synoptic gospels, remember, that give a synopsis, an overview and timeline of the life of Jesus, they give us a clear timeline of the events that lead up to this, including Jesus has just sent them out two by two with very special instructions to go preach the gospel. They've returned from those journeys to tell Jesus about what's happened and they were greeted when they returned with news of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, being murdered and mutilated. And then it says in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, that Jesus says, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and rest for a while. I point this out because the reason for their boarding the boat that we find them on here and traveling towards this desolated, desert, de deserted area was because of Jesus' perception of their need for rest. The famous, famous preacher of old, G. Campbell Morgan, he referred to it as a rebuking revelation for some of us. Because for many of us, we deny and resent the fact that we actually need rest. But as we talked last week, we rest because we are not God. We are categorically different than him. And we were created and designed with a rhythm and need for rest. But our story here clearly shows us that the weight of the world was not placed on their shoulders because the king of the world... It's telling them it's okay to withdraw and to rest. But the crowd that could see them from the shores of the lake and would run ahead to a distant shore to greet them as they arrived on its most remote eastern shores would seemingly keep that, that rest from actually happening. You see, at the end of the long day then of, of what takes place and transpires, Luke's gospel tells us of Jesus preaching the gospel and healing many sick. The need for a meal becomes the topic of conversation that's most pertinent to the multitude and seems to be most on the minds of the disciples. And it's really impossible for us to know with any certainty whether the disciples' comments regarding the crowd that are found in the four Gospels are actually something that they're speaking of exclusively to get rid of the crowd 
or if it's because they are expressing a genuine concern for the crowd. In one of the Gospels, it says, send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. What we do know for sure is what John's Gospel tells us here, because it shares the detail that when Jesus observed the crowd, Jesus' mind went to their care, and he asked Philip, who other passages tell us is our local boy, he was from this region, he asked him, where should we go buy bread that these many may eat? The other Gospels highlight for us that Jesus tells the guys, you feed them. Which I don't know if I should call it ironic or comical, because again, think of the sequence of events. He sent them out two by two and gave them specific instruction not to take money or even a money belt with them when they went, because he wanted them to live by faith. They just came back, still pockets empty without a money belt, and now Jesus is like, wow, and look at these many thousands that are here. You feed them. It doesn't seem like a very fair ask. The disciples, they're wiped out and weary. In fact, that's why he's saying, let's go get a break together and rest together. And now they are dealing with the tension and frustration that they seem to feel towards the people who gathered that now Jesus is saying, and they're your responsibility, do something about it. But in the story, once they admitted their own inability to meet the need and subsequently then turned back towards Jesus for the resolution to the problem and burden that they carried, then they could rest. And even for them in the story, be filled up and satisfied with a basket of food for each of them, meaning a meal and then some to take on the road with them. If we're honest about our own lives, the real burden of weariness we deal with in life has less to do often with us physically being worn out so much as it has to do with the fact that we're just overwhelmed. Our awareness of our inadequacy or the reality of, of how small and limited we are and how we don't have solutions to big problems. And sometimes we even feel like God himself looks our direction like, hey, figure it out. But it's in those moments that we must turn to the one who does not share our limitations. We must embrace faith in Jesus. Because that is where you find true rest, even in the midst of chaos. You find true rest in trusting in Jesus, the one who doesn't share your limitations. You see, here in John 6, it tells you that Jesus does this thing, asking them to do the math and to come up with a solution. He asks them to do it, it says, as a test. He does it to test them, verse 6 says. This was a test to them to see if they would trust him and his ability to provide. And this was undoubtedly a lesson for them and for us that shows us that he can handle what they couldn't. That he can handle, it's a reminder for us that he can handle what we can't. Remember, the, rate, the weight of the world was not placed upon any of our shoulders because the king of the world is giving us permission to withdraw and rest. And the main obstacle to that rest in the story is not the presence of people, nor is it the persistence of the problem that sat before them. It was their lack of faith and humility. You see, we have to be willing in humility to lay our burdens down and confess like they did. I can't do this. We've got nothing. But then in the same breath, turned heaven's direction and in faith pronounced, but I believe that you care and I believe that you can. They could rest because Jesus was doing the heavy lifting here. There was rest for their souls because the weight of the world wasn't on their shoulders. They sat in the presence and pleasure of the king of the world. You see, the sign of the feeding of the multitude points to the kind of life that Jesus is offering, because that's what he begins to teach about. 
And the first thing that you notice about it is that it's a life where he's inviting those of you who are weary to come and find rest, which doesn't mean always a freedom from the people who weary you or the problems that are persistent in your life, but it's you embracing faith in the midst of those things and finding rest still. It's the disciples on the boat where they're asking, do you even care for us? Do you even care what happens to us? You remember that Jesus gives a stern rebuke to them because they should not have assumed that if Jesus cared for them, he wouldn't allow the storm to come their direction. They should have had confidence that he cared for them and had power over the storm. You see, you and I, we can have rest in the middle of the storm. We don't have to wait till he calms the storm because we're seeing someone who isn't limited like we are. The same here, they're feeling the pressure. What do we do? But then they could look and say, but what could he do? And that's what you find. The life with Jesus that we're invited into is a life and experience that it can include rest in the midst of chaos. But the second thing is it's a life and experience that has eternal purpose. It has eternal purpose as you serve and follow Jesus and as you serve him by serving others around you. You see, what you find in the story, I think, is that you realize that the disciples were not called to solve problems so much as they were asked to serve people. And I think that's different because one is a crazy burden, solve the problem. But in the end, Jesus simply says, you serve them and distribute what I freely give. What I miraculously can give, you just distribute it, not manufacture it. You see, Jesus here says, according to John, that he does this to test them, telling them, go buy food for everyone. And they made a, a rational suggestion. You just should send them off to have all of them Go find their own meal because we don't think we can do this. Jesus then responds with an irrational suggestion. No, you feed them. And they do the math and it says here 200 denarii. This is a day's wage. We're talking over a year or I'm sorry, over a half year salary is what they're talking about here. That's the kind of money it would cost us to get these people some food. And even if they had that money at their disposal, which again, they didn't even have a pocketbook with them. Even if they had it, they're in a desolate area that's remote. There's no shopping mart, no supermarket. There's no Costco to pull into. Like there's literally no way, even if they had the money to go buy enough food in this remote area for all of these people to eat at a moment's notice. It's just not possible. It's just that it was an impossible ask. Jesus was asking them to do the impossible, which is exactly the conclusion Jesus, I believe, wanted them to come to. That Jesus, what you're asking us to do, we're not capable of doing. My friends, if this is how you feel when you're looking at your own life and saying, God, I want you to use my life, but this feels impossible. I actually think you're in good company and you might even be exactly where Jesus wants you to be. You see, Jesus in this moment, what he could have responded and done is made it so that it rained down bread from heaven again, like God had done in the Old Testament. He could have just walked around and pulled loaves and fishes from people's ears like a good party trick. Instead though, what he does is think of the story, he uses their food even though it was inadequate in order to feed the multitudes. Because he would take what little they had that was inadequate, but it was the best they could come up with. And you even wonder like how sheepish was that moment where the boy comes to the disciples and thankfully he didn't go to Judas, but where he comes to the other guys and like, here's the little bit that I have. How sheepish were they when they walk him back over to Jesus? In fact, you'll notice they're like, hey, the boy says he's got a little bit he could get. Like, yeah, the kid had this great idea, whatever. Like, we've got nothing. We'll put it on the kid. The naive kid thinks, Jesus, that maybe with the five loaves and the two little fish that you could do something. 
And he did just that. He multiplied it, and then what he had them do is distribute it. They were not manufacturers. No, only he could manufacture the miracle. Only he could truly solve the problem. No, they were just distributors. He chose, though, in the story to use people. He could have done this anyway, but he chose to use their inadequate means and their simple, humble service. There's an old quote I can remember hearing many years ago as I was just beginning to serve Jesus. And it goes like this. It says that ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. This is what it looks like for us to care for people, to minister to people. It's when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. That's my role in this. I'm not called to solve problems. I'm called to serve people. I feel the weight of the world in moments so that I can say this is not possible. But in that moment, I turn back in faith to Jesus and can find rest knowing that nothing's impossible for you. Please remember that Jesus is not looking for your power. He's looking for your faith in his power. He's looking for your simple obedience to his calling and his leading in your life. God can do great things through your life, and it's not predicated upon how clean your track record is or how great your ability might be or the depth of understanding or wisdom you think you possess. It's not predicated upon your natural or even supernatural giftings. God was fine using completely inadequate people and resources who were simply willing to respond to his call and take a step of faith forward. He's the one then that does the miraculous work. He accomplishes the miraculous through us. Which means, this is what it means, that we could never be too ordinary. We can never have too little money or resources to really make a difference in the world. Because the work is accomplished through the power of God working through your obedience and faith, even if everything you offer is so very inadequate. He fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, through a boy's sack lunch. If this really happened, which I believe it did, then he's not limited by your limited resources. Guys, this is what we prayed this morning. We took time as a church to pray for Morocco after it's been shook by this earthquake. And, and what we are praying, we're, we were doing because we believed that God can do more than us. That we're limited geographically. We're limited and that borders are closed to us. We're limited because we want to bring Jesus there, but they don't want Jesus there. We pray because we know that there is more than we can do than just think. But we also pray with open hands because we still believe that there's more that we can do than just to pray. It's not the only thing that we do. We open our hands that hold our resources of our time and our gifting and our resources and say to God, what would you like to do with our meager five loaves and two fish? God, even on a, a massive, massive scale like this, what would you do with our five loaves and two fish? If you want it, then you can come and take it. It's you looking on things, not just on a massive nationwide scale like you're seeing there with cities being crippled, but it's even in personal lives of people around you. You saying, Jesus, I will pray because I know that you are not limited like I am. But then I'm also going to pray with an open hand and say, in Jesus, whatever resource I have, what could you do with my five loaves and two fish? What difference could it make? I think it could make a lot if, Jesus, you want to use it. 
because we're willing to give what little we may have into the hands of Jesus and to watch him then make much of it as he uses those things to care for people and to reveal himself to people. I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite stories from the life of Jesus that I go back to often in my own mind and heart. When I first started following Jesus and and then stepped into ministry, I remember having a really overwhelming day where two people who I dearly loved brought huge issues. One, that his young person whose family was falling apart because of a messy, broken relationship that would tear apart their home and family. And, And then someone else who I deeply cared about who who was dealing with the the fallout of having grown up in a home where that person was molested by a parent and all the brokenness it caused in their lives. And and both of them talking and kind of throwing it out in front of me to where I felt like there's a problem here to be solved and it's their woundedness. There's a problem to be solved and it's the brokenness in their home. There's a problem to be solved and I want to help them. And they didn't come to me because I had a title. They came to me because they knew that I loved them. And I remember getting alone that night and being so broken and saying, Jesus, it's not just that I'm not fit for ministry. Jesus, I'm not fit to follow you. Because if following you means serving other people and me loving them like this and people keep bringing stuff to me, what am I supposed to do? I can't fix this. I can't solve this. And then I sat down on the floor in my room as a bachelor and next to the bunk bed in the house of a little tiny house that had eight of us living in just a dump. But I sat down, I opened my Bible to where I'd left off that morning. And the very next story was this one where Jesus asked his followers to do the impossible, and then once they said, we can't, he then said, would you do the simple thing then of just distributing the miracle that I provide? You see, God, I don't believe, calls us to solve problems. He calls us to serve people. He bears the weight and responsibility of doing the impossible, the miraculous. We get to just carry his miraculous provision through loving channels to people for the glory of God. My friends, this will only happen, though, in our lives if we allow ourselves to be interrupted and allow our busy pace to be slowed down. Because what the disciples viewed as an interruption, Jesus viewed here as an opportunity. And we can very quickly allow ourselves to become too busy for a divine interruption to take place. Not that we feel the need to solve the problem, but that we'd slow down enough to just care for the person. You see, don't miss this. John's gospel tells us that the lesson of the miracle was that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus' miracle is teaching us that he came to give bread, the bread of life. Life. He's coming to give life, it's saying. But for someone to experience the life that he gives, it would take a miracle. And the way that that miracle of new life would be dispersed is through human channels. They're Jesus followers. Listen, you are no one. I am no one's savior. We are simply to carry the savior their direction. We're simply to distribute what Jesus alone can give. Life with Jesus. What is it supposed to look like? The kind of life that Jesus is offering is a life that's marked by rest, even amidst the chaos. It's one where you should find that you have eternal purpose as you love and serve other people. But there's a third thing, and that's that those two things make it so you have this incredible quality and experience of life that you cannot find anywhere else. As author 
Author Anthony Salvaggio highlighted in his book on the seven signs, he said, while Jesus fed these people for practical reasons because they traveled far and were hungry, he also fed them for profoundly spiritual reasons. In the miraculous feeding, Jesus was teaching people that they had a greater spiritual hunger, which only he could satisfy. Which is why Jesus says, and I am the bread of life. You need to understand in the ancient world, bread was life. This is why Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, pray and say, give us our, our day, this daily bread. They didn't need to pray for everything else that they needed to be sustained and survived because it was all summarized just in the simple statement, their cultural understanding of if we just have bread, we can survive. We'll have sustenance and make it. And so Jesus would simplify it and say, everything you'd need to survive, just pray this way. And Jesus is now saying, what you need to survive and live is what I provide in myself. You see, the sign of the feeding of the multitude, it points to the kind of life that Jesus is offering, which is something we're told that the multitude, they failed to see, they seem to overlook. Because when they come back the next day, Jesus rebukes them when they come back looking for another mobile food truck appointment with Jesus, where he's gonna fill their bellies again. Verses 26 and 27 record Jesus' response for you, where he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Okay, now don't miss what Jesus begins to open up with his teaching here as he explains what he was doing. He reveals something about the human heart here. He's saying that we're naturally pulled to, drawn to temporal things that cannot offer us lasting satisfaction. The human heart, it longs for meat that perishes, like manna in the wilderness that's spoiled overnight, that couldn't satisfy and couldn't be hung on to for sustenance the next day. What we do as humans is we search for security and significance, for meaning and satisfaction in things that cannot give it. The bread they chased, it was symptomatic of the pattern that all of humanity follows, of chasing things that cannot give us lasting satisfaction. So Jesus, the bread of life, says here that he can give lasting satisfaction and meaning and purpose and significance and security, but that it's bypassed for the crumbs that we scrounge together from temporal experiences that the world can offer us. And that could be a sexual encounter, that in the moment is pleasurable, but leaves you empty and brokenness is left in its trail. It could be the respect and power that you crave that leaves you exhausted as you chase after the Joneses. It could be the neighborhood or car or accomplishment that we have found experientially, if we're honest, that it's only when we finally achieve and receive those things we chased that we see them for what they really are. They were a lie and a sham all along that could never bear the weight of our significance or security. Think back to Jesus' words when he said that it's difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The one who approached him that day had everything the world says that you need. He was rich, he, he was young, and he was respected by other people. We call him the rich young ruler. But he came to Jesus because he recognized, though he had it all, we'd say, he'd eaten of everything and had his fill. He's saying it wasn't enough, that he lacked something. He needed something more. He came asking Jesus, what else is there? What do I lack? Jesus didn't go to him chasing him down, being like, I know you're doing good and you feel full, but let me convince you of something, buddy. You're actually empty inside. No, the man came to Jesus freely admitting his emptiness and inability to remedy it. 
You see, there's a deep longing in every human heart for what no human can give or create or conjure up or cure, a longing that God alone can give. But the bridge you have to cross to receive what God gives to satisfy that longing and hunger is a pathway called humility. Because you have to be willing and able to see yourself as simply just a child in need of another's provision for you who'd come with the faith of a child. And this is why those who are successful in their own eyes tend to find it the most offensive. They find grace the most offensive to say that I have to come open-handed and just freely receive what Jesus gives. Don't miss this. The story of Jesus' interaction with that rich young ruler, it does not teach us that Jesus is excluding the rich on account of their wealth. The issue is not that he had riches. It was that his riches held him captive. His riches had him. So Jesus tells him, so go sell all that you have and give everything away to the poor and then come and follow me. And in the Gospels, it tells us, at this the man's face fell and he went away sorrowful for he had great wealth. You see, his success that he was chasing, this, this false food that he was gorging himself with, had a way of setting a trap for him that he remained inside the clutches of his, his success at the expense of his very soul because his identity was so wrapped up in his success that he was blind to his need for a savior. For him to leave his wealth would be to lose his sense of self because after all, he's the rich young ruler. His identity was so wrapped up in his wealth and success. That's why he couldn't leave his riches. It's because his money had become more than just money. It's because his bread he consumed in an attempt to fill the void of his soul it was his security and his significance. And if he'd let it go, what would he be? So the man's face fell and he went away sorrowful. You see, if your wealth is your source of life, giving it purpose and meaning and value, if it defines your life, if it's your bread, you too will find sorrow as that bread fails to satisfy you, as Jesus says, as it spoils. If sex or your sexual expression is your source of life, giving it purpose and meaning and value, if it defines your life, if it's your bread, you too will find sorrow as that bread fails to satisfy you. If it's your work or your family or your marriage or any other earthly temporal thing, if it's the source of your life, giving it purpose and meaning and value, if it defines your life, if it's your bread, you too will find sorrow as that bread fails to satisfy you. C.S. Lewis famously said it in his radio broadcast that were aired many, many years ago that became a book called Mere Christianity. He said it so beautifully when he simply said, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, the sign is trying to show us here that there's a life that Jesus is inviting us into that has an incredible quality and experience to it that you'll find nowhere else. In fact, in verse 27, Jesus promises that in receiving and consuming him, the bread of life, what you will find and experience, he says, is everlasting life. There's two Greek words, real quick, two Greek words for life. There's bios, Think biology, like the study of life and, or things in living form. There's bios, but then there's zoe. Zoe is different than bios. It's not just saying you're, you're alive. It's saying you're living. It's speaking of a quality of life. And it's the word that Jesus uses again and again and again here. In verse 27, in verse 35, in verse 40, in 47, in 48, in verse 51, he says, I am the bread of life, the zoe bread 
which came down from heaven. And if any man eats of this bread, he shall have Zoe, a quality of life forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life, the Zoe, the quality of life offered to the world. When Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life and of the promise of eternal life, he does not use the word bios, speaking merely of you will live forever. No, he uses the word zoe to, con- to convince you that it's more than just existence that he's promising you in your future. He's promising you a quality of life in your presence. A year and a half ago, we had some wonderful people take us to Hawaii as a family, and we have a photo of Keegan. He's sitting poolside with a virgin pina colada in hand, legs kicked back in a, in a chair, and an umbrella creating shadow over him. We're close enough to the coast, even though he's poolside, to feel the greeting of a, a gentle ocean breeze. And Declan, our youngest, looks over right as I snap the picture, and she said, Keegan's living his best life. <laughs> I told you recently, there's someone I'm trying to help right now, and he keeps making the comment. He said, I don't feel like I'm living, I'm surviving. This isn't living. We understand there's a difference between surviving and living, being alive and truly living. Eternal bios is less than what Christ offers and promises to you. It's eternal zoe that begins today that Jesus is offering. It's in John 10 where Jesus will say, I am coming that they might have life, zoe, a quality of life, and that they might have it more abundantly. He's saying that you will experience joy and fulfillment and purpose and relationship with him that you will not find or experience anywhere else. And all of that is available in your life today, not just a promise for the future, for the moment where you die and and are with God. No, it's promised today. It's why he says in verse 35, Jesus saying to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He does not say when they die. He's talking about beginning now. There's a quality of life. Don't miss this. Jesus is addressing here the deeper hunger beneath your hunger, a hunger pain that all of humanity suffers from. It's the desire to find something or someone that moves you from existing to really living, from bios to zoe. Anything other than the bread of life, though, what you'll find when you're trying to find something that will move you from existent to truly living you'll find that it spoils, that it won't last, that it's like the manna. By calling himself the bread of life and contrasting it with the manna in the wilderness, Jesus is here saying that any substitute from him and what he alone can give, Zoe, a real reason for life, something that moves you from existing to really living, every substitute he's saying will spoil. It will fail you and prove its own inability to give you lasting satisfaction for any real length of time. In other words, he's saying you'll hunger again. They cannot be, those things cannot be the thing that move your life from existing to really living because they cannot bear the weight of your happiness or your identity, of your security or significance. Like the rich young ruler who who built his life and identity on his wealth and prominence and yet freely admits that it wasn't able to give him the peace and the joy and the happiness. person other than Jesus, you'll find that sorrow's there to greet you too. Whether it's your wealth or health or beauty or sexuality or sexual expression or the house, career, car or family, all of it you'll find will fail you if you're looking to extract from it what it's unable to give to you. 
which is the power to move you from simply merely existing to actually living. Only he But the million to receive and experience the true bread of life that can satisfy and satiate your deep hunger for purpose and meaning in life that can move us from merely existing to actually living. Well, Jesus answers that very question. Look really quick and then we're done. In verse 27 where he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What do we have to do? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? They ask, what do we need to do? You're you're promising something. So what do we got to do to experience what you're offering and promising? Verse 29, the very next verse, Jesus answers and says to them, this is the work of God. What does God want me to do? That you believe in him whom he sent. My friends, you're brought face to face again with the uniqueness of the gospel. Because every other religion just sets an example before you. What do I need to do to experience that quality of life, to reach nirvana, to be enlightened, to be worthy, to be rescued? What do I have to do? Oh, they'll give you a list. There is no list, though. Jesus says you believe in him whom God has sent. You see, every other religion presents essentially a list for you to follow, to reach and to please God, whereas Christianity is essentially not a list, but news. News that you must believe of the things that God has done for you. This is what Jesus says, opens the way for you to experience life the way he, he created and intends you to enjoy it. Not just existing, but truly living. It's that you realize Jesus didn't just come merely as an example. If he was that, he'd crush you. No, he came as a savior to rescue you. As he would say later in John's gospel, in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the zoe. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't present an example or a path before us for us to labor and follow. Jesus is the way, and embracing him by faith is embracing this life. My friends, the point of the story, the sign is is pointing you towards your need to feed on Jesus. To make him your daily bread you consume. To keep him solely in the place and position of your reason for living. You'd have more than an alarm clock that gets you out of bed in the morning, and it's Jesus. That you'd lean on him because he can bear the weight of your significance and security. I appreciated so much how author Timothy Keller, he said this about this. He says that you and I must eat or we will die. That's just a reality in life. But what he points out is that everything we eat has to die first before being consumed. Whether a plant or an animal, all of it must die so that you can live. And for Jesus here to tell us that we are to consume him like bread, he is clearly saying to us that he would first be crushed then like fine flour that he would become breakable and broken, that his life would be given before he could be received and consumed by us. But as we receive and consume what was given for us, his very life, we receive with it his Holy Spirit that now indwells us, a risen Savior. My friends, the point of this is to feed on Jesus. And I'll, I'll just tell you personally, 
It was such good timing for me to hit this story this week. Like, such good timing. Because being faced with things that just feel overwhelming or too much, or maybe they are impossible, and not having solutions to remember, I'm to turn back to Jesus where I can find rest, even when there's that expectation or when there's that problem. And I can say, Jesus, you alone can do the miraculous. I'll serve people, but I know you haven't asked me to solve problems. You've asked me to live by faith and by humility. That I can do. It was such good timing for me to remember to feed on Jesus the bread of life, that he's the source of a life worth living. Because when my life becomes hamstrung and hampered by unforgiveness and bitterness, I feed on Jesus and that frees me from that bitterness, that unforgiveness. Because when I feed on Jesus and receive of his forgiveness of me, how could I hang on to unforgiveness towards anyone else? I experience a quality of life the world can't find because I'm freed by him as I partake of him. It's the anxiety and the pressure I've been dealing with and the shingles that many of you are aware of I was dealing with a couple of weeks ago. The byproduct of that, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg or the shingles or the anxiety, but it's been a constant push and reminder on me that I need to feed on Jesus when I'm worried and anxious and overwhelmed. That I'm looking to him and partaking of his goodness saying, and Jesus, I know that you're present with me and capable of things that I'm not capable of and that you've got good plans for my life and that you are the shepherd of this church. You carry the responsibility for it. I do not. You see, as I feed on the bread of life, I find a quality of life that I could find nowhere else, a quality that's unshakable. And it's because the one who is unshakable would become broken and be buried and rise again. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.